title in those early chapters of Matthew. The Spirit and Jesus was right because they always hung out together. Think about it. Chapter 1. So the scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit birthed Jesus. I can imagine that they were probably paid penitent in Mary's tummy <laughs> for about nine months. Just trying to keep it real. <laughs> or what about in chapter 3? When Jesus rises up out of the Jordan River. And he didn't look like sexy Jesus. He didn't look like GQ Jesus. He was wet Jesus. And when he rolled out of it broke out from heaven, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And the Spirit came down on him sat right down with him tight. So we get to our text. It was in the text that Matthew writes, and the Spirit drove Jesus into the desert. The Greek is a little bit more emphatic. The Greek is literally means that he pushed into the desert. Imagine the devil, does the Spirit, pushing Jesus. Did he go willingly, or did he kind of just shuffle his feet? Maybe the Spirit was crying, maybe tears were falling down his face because this was not the way it was supposed to be. Not from his friend. Jesus was pushed into the desert to be tested by the devil. Some of us know what that's like. Somewhere along down the line, the Spirit is going to push you into a place you really don't want to go. The Spirit is going to push you and shove you into a corner you really don't want to be in. Sometime, maybe in your college career, you're going to have to run into that desert. And the Spirit is going to be like a gatekeeper and there's nowhere else you can go. It is your test. Everybody will get pushed by the Spirit sooner or later. What do you do when you are being tested? It is then that you have to make a choice. Will it be that you want more of God or do you want more of yourself? It's really in the desert where you come into full, let's say, face-to-face, -face, that you can see that your limitations is really a gift from God. That your limitations is really a gift from God. I don't know if you know this, but there's not an S on your chest. I don't know if you're going to break out and do this. But sometimes, Maybe even today, what are the limitations in which Jesus is trying to teach us through the words of Matthew? How do we embrace them? How and do we get what God is trying to teach us?
in order to ground us again in something that is more than ourselves, more than our education, more than our pedigree, more than our money, more than our skills. It comes right back to, oh Lord, I need thee every hour. I need thee every hour. Is that true? It only happens when the Spirit pushes you into the desert. First thing, you can't, we can't get to the promised land without a stop in the desert. You can't get to the promised land without a stop in the desert. I saw a recent poll about Americans in praying. 84% of Americans say that they pray all the time. But there's also a poll that says most of them are lying. There's also a poll that says 54% of people, when they pray, they pray for their families, their loved ones, and their financial situation. There's also one that says 34% of people, they pray only when they are desperate. They pray only when they're desperate. Sometimes we ask God, please, Lord, if you would just get me out of this situation, I'll never do it again. None of y'all ever prayed that, right? Not during finals or projects. Not during interim. Because you are good planners. Right. The desert becomes the place where God begins to teach us. And we try to avoid the desert at all costs. We want to get out of there as fast as we could because we got some place to go. We got a degree to get. We got graduate school to go to. We got money to make. We got debts to pay. Because mama and daddy is saying, I need my money. <laughs> when are you going to pay me back? And you say, soon and very soon, we will get a job. The desert becomes the place that we try to avoid because we are on our way to something else. Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. And it was not like a speed bump. It was not like going to an oasis. It was not like just a small little wait. I love one of my favorite authors is Craig Barnes, and he says this. He says, we, we have a tendency to only see the desert experience as a speed bump to the place of milk and honey. He remarked that in the Bible, the desert is always the place that is seen as in-between place. The in-between place. Nobody wants to stay there because life is hard and frightening in the wilderness. The only reason people enter the wilderness was to get to someplace else. Jesus didn't just see the desert as another place just to get through. But rather, it was a place in which Jesus was trying to learn what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to walk through your shoes? He couldn't have done that if he would only stayed just a week as if it was some resort. He stayed the 40 days because he wanted to deal with the devil, mano a mano, on his terms. And that God was up to something more than just having this thing called getting to the next place, getting to the promised land. God teaches us best 
when we are in the wilderness and we got no other resources to go to. God teaches us that it's not about our success. It's when our defenses are down. It is when our energy level is low. It is when our survival instincts begin to kick in. It is then our praying life begins to dwindle because what do we do? We think about our own resources. When you're dealing with the devil, it's not about your resources. It's really about the God who is with you in the wilderness. Did you know that God will travel with you through the wilderness? He doesn't leave you, and he didn't leave Jesus. The desert is not some place that you are on your way to the promised land. The, the desert is actually the place where God wants to teach you how much he loves you and how much you need his love. The second is this. Embracing our insatiable hunger for the living God. In the book of Exodus, the people of God were not happy with their leaders, Moses and Aaron. They waxed nostalgically about, you know, when we were back in Egypt, man, man, them pomegranates was huge. The onions and the leeks, they was out of this world. You know, Pharaoh wasn't all that bad when you come to think about it. But Moses and Aaron, what have you done for us lately? They began to complain. Life was so much better in Egypt. Exodus 16.4 says this is what God wanted to do. But God, it was a test to see if they would follow his instructions. God met their hunger with mysterious bread that dropped out of the sky. And chickens, no, not chickens, quail, quail <laughs> Kentucky fried chicken dropping from the sky. They was like, man, I need a couple more wings. Maybe a drumstick. God took care of their basic needs. And it was all miracle. It was all sheer gift. It was all something that they did not manufacture on their own. But they began to do something else. They began to reduce God to just someone who took care of their appetite. When God is just someone who just takes care of your appetite, then there's another word for that. He's just a nice, good sugar daddy. Sometimes you're just trying to pimp God. Hello? And you know God will not be pimped. No, he's trying to test this. He's trying to say, there's a choice. And the choice is this. Will you trust him as the one you crave and hunger love from? Or is your appetite more important than him? You see, that was the test with the stones. Sure, Jesus could have torn those stones in the bread. Whoop-dee-doo. But was that really the issue? No. The issue was about, was Jesus going to trust God for who he was? Or was it just going to turn into another, I don't know, success ministry? 
How much do you hunger for the love of God? Do you hunger for the love of God that is so desperate that you need it every hour? That you need it every minute? That you need it every second? That you cannot get up without breathing? Lord, I need you today. How many of us trust him as the one who's not just providing some temporary relief for us, but rather this, Jesus could have easily turned the stones into bread, but that was not the issue. The hunger for God's love was the real issue. Jesus embraced his limitation to show us that we are more than what we eat. We are really about love. That God so loved the world that he gave his what? One and only that whoever believes in him shall not but shall have everlasting. That is what you were made for. But that is what Israel missed in the Old Testament and what Jesus tried to redeem again. It is in the limitations that God embraces again. Jesus embraces again. God loves him, and he doesn't have to prove it. You know what? A 4.0 don't love you back. Hello. Just because you get a wonderful scholarship, it ain't going to wrap you in a blanket. No matter how many auxiliaries or things that you are a part of, at the end of the day, it is God who will love you in Jesus Christ. Because that is your identity. My identity. It's in Christ and the limitations that he embraced shows us again he knew God loved him. The next is this. Embracing the limitations of certainty. It's right, Jesus was loved by the devil to get on that high top temple and if you are the son of God then go ahead and jump off. I'm going to throw Psalm 91 at you. The angel's going to catch you. There's a net right down there, dog. I dare you. I double dare you. That's in the Greek. And what the devil was trying to do is say, if you are who you say you are, then be a bad mamma jamma. Go ahead and do that thing. Do it, dog! What the devil was trying to do is say, you know what? Jesus, if you're really certain, then do this. Jump off. The angels will have charge over you. You got this. You know there were a lot of people watching from the temple and saying, is this fool going to jump off? Martha, go get the popcorn. This is going to be good. <laughs> this is going to be good. Because if he jump off this thing, whoo, this is going to be in the Jerusalem news. <laughs> the devil was licking his chops. He going to do it. He sure going to do it. But what the devil was really actually was nursing his own unfairness. 
Sometimes life isn't fair, right? That's not a rhetorical question. Sometimes life isn't fair, right? Sometimes stuff like we just heard in Niger happens. Sometimes our grandparents get sick and they die. Sometimes students get hit by cars and they end up in the hospital. Sometimes students flunk out. Sometimes the spirit pushes us in places we really didn't want to go. But there we are. And you know, it's really, really tempting to really press God to say, God, if I jump off the temple, then make it certain that you are going to catch me. Sometimes we pray those prayers. Lord, make it so certain that I am going to pass this test because I didn't do quite what I was supposed to do the last four. Lord, please let me get to, uh, to the food court because I'm hungry. Lord, I'm having a tough time believing you. Give me some sign that you're real. You see, the devil was asking Jesus for an insurance card. We do that when we're being pushed into a corner. We do that when we don't have the resources that we need in order to make it happen. Life isn't fair. And life isn't certain. But here's one thing. God's love is. Jesus told him, no, I don't have to prove that my father loves me. It just is. You know, brothers and sisters, you don't have to prove to anyone that God loves you. It just is. Because all you have to do is look at the cross. Did, G did not Jesus pay it all? God showed the full extent of his love by giving you the very best that was his son. There is nothing more that you can do in order for God to love you more. But there's not a thing that you can screw up that God will love you less. It just is. But you have to embrace the limitation that you're human. That you cannot control all the variables in your life. But be assured of this, God will be there. His spirit will be there. Look at the person to your right and left and say, God will be there. Go ahead, do that. The last is this, the limitations of fairness. In the book of Genesis, there's two brothers. and. I have four brothers, and very often during my growing up years, I got into fights. 
because I'm the second boy and my, and my older brother, and he used to beat the crap out of me. And so when he would go to bed, I would do things to him because I thought I was a little smarter than him. <laughs> I didn't fight up front. I was just subversive. <laughs> I do the sneaky stuff. But at the end of the day, he still beat the crap out of me. <laughs> well, these two brothers, they thought that they were going to work in order to please God. And when they worked, one brought the fat from the, uh, the, the meat of the animals that he was raising, and the other brother brought the fruit from the ground. And they laid it out and they said, God, what do you think? One was accepted and one wasn't. Genesis also tells us that sin was crouching at Cain's door. So instead of taking it up with God, he took it out on his brother. The Bible records that it's the first murder. Cain did not think it was fair for God to reject him. The devil knows exactly what that's like. Isaiah tells us that he was kicked out of heaven, him and a bunch of his angels, because he thought it was unfair that he would do a coup d'etat in heaven. Anytime that you try to do a coup d'etat in heaven, you're going to lose. <laughs> the odds are kind of against you. And all that time, he had been nursing this unfairness that God, it isn't fair that you kicked me out because I'm just as good as you. I'm just as competent as you. So when he meets Jesus at that place, he says, I will give you all the kingdoms. They were in the Kidron Valley, and there was a grand sweep of all the kingdoms. And he said, all this can be yours if you would just get on your knees and worship me. Now, if you were in Jesus' shoes, what would you do? Would you take the deal? If we're really honest with ourselves, it would be quite tempting to make a pact with the devil in order to rectify the unfairness in your life, to even up the scales. Because we like to think life needs to be even and fair. But here's the other thing. Grace is never fair. Paul says it this way. While we were yet sinners, what did Jesus do? He died for us. Every last one of us deserved the wrath of God. Because if you look to the person to your right and left, you know what you see? a bona fide, certified sinner. Go get a good look at him. Go look at him. He's like, oh, man, mm. You look like that, mm. <laughs> The devil was, was nursing that unfairness because he wanted things to be even. Worship 
is about love. And what we were doing here this, this, after, this evening is that we were showing our love to God. We have a hunger for God's love. When I, we have a hunger for God's love, you know what God does? He will fill it up. He will allow it to overflow because all you have to do is just make yourself available. You have to admit that your storage, your cup is empty and that you need God to fill you up. And he promises, I will do it. I will do it. All you have to do is open your hands. Here, this is the posture of worship. We open our hands and we trust that God will give us what we need when we need it because he loves you. Do you know how deeply God loves you? Worship is not trying to prove anything to God. It is like children running to him and say, Daddy, pick me up. Your daddy has his arms open. All you have to do is run towards him. He will not reject you. He will embrace you. That's what he's been trying to tell you all these years. Pray with me, please. Lord, the old song goes, how deep is the Father's love. All we have to do is look at Jesus. He didn't choose the easy way out. He went all the way to the cross. He could have took Peter's idea by using force and bringing down a legion of angels, but he said no. In a dark and dreary garden, he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. He went all the way, took on the pain and the suffering, not out of guilt, not out of being bullied, but out of love. Lord, we hunger for that love this evening. Lord, we want to be like children. We want to run into your arms. And we know that you will embrace us. Not by our GPA. Not by how many classes we take. Not by what city we come from. Not by what major we have. Not by how many years we've worked here as staff. You just love us because you're yours. Thank you 
thank you that you walked in our shoes but did not sin. Thank you for your love. Teach us to hunger for that love. Not just today, but every day. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. And all God's people say, Amen.